Please turn in the Word of God to Hebrews 8. Or Hebrews 8. (laughs) Still get stopped every now and again over that particular digit. I was in Chick-fil-A a couple of months ago with the children and it was something to do with eight. I don't know if it was the meal number eight or whatever, but I said the number and I told him, uh, he just looked at me like as if I was speaking a foreign language. Uh, was, uh, certain things, that the challenges of being in a different land, separated by a common language, not right? But this is where we are, Hebrews 8. So it's been some time since we were in our study in the book of Hebrews, right back to November. I don't intend to give a a long-winded summary of things, but we come into this chapter going to look at the opening five verses but hopefully we can give some sense of the context in the message, even by the nature of the language that is before us. Let's read from verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Amen. We'll end the reading there. That's the fifth verse. This is the very word of the living God. It is a living word. Receive it as such. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, may we never despise any utterances of Thy holy oracles. Give us hearts that are teachable and submissive, because every word of God is pure. We have no idea what's on the morrow, what lies ahead of us this week. But may we be equipped to face the challenges of living in a fallen world and grant that we might be enabled and empowered, filled with all the fullness of God, truly equipped to live for Thy glory. This is our prayer, that we might simply live for Thy glory. Please grant that this message today might aid us in that objective. 
power of the preacher fall upon each of us here. Sometimes we pray, Lord, for revival. Then we come to this occasion and we don't expect that perhaps even today it might break forth. Help us to anticipate blessings from thy hand. Let us love us. Let us love us. Show thyself to us today. We would see Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Many of you know that under Moses, God established Israel as a nation. They were just a family, really, before that, with promises. And God had said that he would bring them out and that he would be with them and establish his covenant with them. And under Moses then, this all unraveled or came to pass. And God gave to Moses, or under Moses, or through Moses, appointed a detailed arrangement of not just them as a nation, but also in regard to their worship. He addressed them specifically how they should worship God. And in these details that were given through Exodus and into Leviticus, it required a priesthood from the tribe of Levi, a place known as the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle, and sacrificial offerings performed at the brazen altar. There were morning and evening sacrifices, burnt offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, and so on. There were bulls, lambs, goats, turtle doves. There was also a laver of water, a table of showbread, a golden lampstand, and an altar of incense. There was also a veiled area, in fact, two veiled areas of sort. You had the holy place and then the most holy place. And that farther one, that most holy place, only one man was permitted to enter in there on one occasion through the year. In that place, there was a mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark of the Covenant, there were the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Israel was also given prescribed holy days, annual feasts, and special garments for the high priest. And you start going through all the details and focusing in on all the prescriptions given. I mean, it's, it, it's quite involved. And the whole, I guess, the, the, the pattern of the days of the Jews were, were governed by their worship. Their life was really in a rhythm of these prescribed days and feasts and so on. And yet when you look at all the details and examine everything that is given and the, 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 the way in which God, in such a particular fashion, gave to His people a way in which to worship Him and approach Him, yet it still came back to having this flaw. It could not deal with sin. The one thing that the Israelite needed was to have his sin dealt with, to know that he was pardoned, to know that he was forgiven, to know that he was reconciled to God. And none of this, none of the things I have listed, none of the details 
that you find in those books written by Moses, none of it justified the ungodly. None of it reconciled the guilty. None of it washed away sin. It was powerless to save. That is why when we come to the book of Hebrews, the apostle is, as a number believe, and certainly I believe, that this is a sermon that has been dictated, put down in record so it can be shared. But you find the preacher, the apostle Paul, giving this message that is driving at the hearts of those who are tempted to, to leave off trusting solely in Christ in a temptation to return back to all that the Lord had given in the past. The apostle chases his audience into the arms of Jesus Christ again and again and again. Almost, we might say, amazed that there should be anyone who would forsake Christ and go back to all the old ceremonies and practices. We come to chapter 8, we arrive at a summary statement not summarizing the entire book, but summarizing specifically our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, warrant to be the high priest of the people of God. Verse 1, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, and so on and so forth. The subject of Christ being the high priest brings us back into this, this scene, the fact that Israel was so dependent upon mediators, men who would mediate between them and God. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ takes on this role as high priest has been weaved out right from the, the, right from the beginning of the book. I mean, go back to chapter 1, just to, you see that this is not a hidden theme. In Hebrews 1, the opening verses, as it extols the Lord Jesus Christ, Verse 3, who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You can see the same language right there as is in our text in Hebrews 8 verse 1. That Christ accomplishes a work and sits down at the right hand of God. And you'll find then the theme of Christ being the high priest in every chapter that we have looked at so far. Every single one. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and now in chapter 8 is reference to the high priest. Dealing with this. And so it's a significant subject. And in, in dealing with it over and over again, what the apostle has been doing is arguing for Christ's right to be seen as a high priest. Because not being from the tribe of Levi might have meant some would conclude he can't be a priest. How can he be a priest? If he's not from the tribe of Levi, he has no right or entitlement to be seen as a priest. But of course, what the apostle does skillfully is show that from the Old Testament, there was always this anticipation that another order of priesthood was to come. One after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. We have looked at that psalm on several occasions. It comes up over and over again here in this epistle. It's, it really lays a foundation in terms of Old Testament argument for, for what the apostle is putting before his audience. This is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is the one whom God said would come. 
be a priest for the people of God. This morning, as we come into chapter 8 and look at these opening five verses, I've titled the message, Summarizing Christ's Superior Priesthood. Summarizing Christ's Superior Priesthood. This is the sum, is what he says. And we have four heads. First, he inhabits a royal throne. Second, he ministers in a divine tabernacle. Third, he offers a perfect sacrifice. And finally, he dwells in a heavenly context. So that's what we'll look at as we consider these verses together this morning. So first then, he inhabits a royal throne. Verse 1, we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now we have in this language, first of all, the mediatorial role of our Lord Jesus Christ, his mediatorial role. We have such an high priest. We have such an high priest. The high priest was necessary because man needs a mediator. And that need hasn't gone away. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, Paul says to Timothy. Now the, the apostle has been establishing, as we've said, what he laid out in chapter 1 verse 3, that Christ, having purged our sins, then sat down. And so he has done this work, this priestly work, and then sits in heaven. And now we have it explicitly stated right here, this high priest who purged our sins is now set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's what good preachers do sometimes. They, they lay out what they're intending to teach, and then they come back to it. And they may come back to it repeatedly in various angles and ways, but they're, they're compounding the same truth. They're driving it into the hearers' hearts that we need a priest and Christ meets all of the demands required of him. In the last few verses of chapter 7, in fact, the entirety of chapter 7, he has been dealing with Christ's priesthood. I'll just run you through how we looked at this in terms of the sermon heads that we looked at in chapter 7. So in verses 1 through 3, we titled that sermon, The Precedent for Christ's Priesthood. The Precedent for Christ's Priesthood. There you see Melchizedek being used. He is, he is setting a precedent why we are allowed to see Christ as a priest, even though he's not from the tribe of Levi. Verses 4 through 10, a superior high priest. Just generally we see that in those verses, he is superior. Verses 11 through 19, a priesthood with better hope. Verses 20 through 24, a priesthood by divine oath. Verse 25, a priesthood that saves to the uttermost. Verses 26 through 28, a priesthood exalted above the heavens. Now, when we come then to verse 1, that's what the apostle is saying. We have such an high priest. We have a high priest who has accomplished this kind of work. This is the kind of high priest that Israel should always have been looking for. Again, when he's saying that he is precedent, that his precedent has been set by Melchizedek, that, that argument of Melchizedek and them coming up in Psalm 110 is giving raise to hope in the Israelite who realizes, the spiritual Israelite, and you think of David, that sacrifice and offering thou desirest not. That there's a recognition that these, these sacrifices that we're going through, while they may be required and are, have importance and value, at the same time, they can't take away sin. 
And the Old Testament saint knew that. There was no possible way that going with, with a bull or with a goat or with a lamb or whatever could actually deal with the problem of their sin. And so Psalm 110 was lifting up their eyes to, to see that that figure that, that Abraham came into contact with, who has no beginning, no end, he has no lineage, that there's one going to come and he's going to stand in a priestly order by himself and he's going to accomplish the work necessary to truly reconcile sinners to God. So in seeing that Christ comes to fulfill that, the Jews should have been thinking to himself, I, well, the Levite can never save. There, there's, no, there's, there's no salvation in their work. We have to have another solution. Rather than clamoring after the Levites, then the apostles saying, look to the one whom God has appointed. And so he gives a better hope. He's, he's appointed by divine host. Is, these are distinctions that we looked at. He's able to save to the uttermost. Remember verse 25? Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You can't say that of any other priest. None of the Levitical priests, none of the high priests of the Levitical line, none of them, could save and truly keep the people of God. And so there's an implied question then in the language of the apostle. Why would you return to something inferior? We have such an high priest, this superior one, this elevated one, this one appointed by divine oath, this one who gives better hope, this one who saves to the uttermost, this one who's a priesthood exalted above the heavens, this one, we have such an high priest. Why? Why would you look to something or someone else? A child of God, you are to keep this at the forefront of your mind. Jesus Christ as the high priest of the people of God. Think about it when you pray. What is your confidence when you pray? How you've lived that day? How you've lived over the recent times? Is that your confidence? No. No, you come knowing that you have this one who's laid down his life. Look at verse 27. This he did once when he offered up himself. He, he offered up himself once, wife, for the sins of his people. When you're, when you're coming to God, you're thinking about this high priest. You're keeping in mind this mediator that has been appointed by God for you. So that as you come to God with your sin, as you recognize your shortcomings, you have in view, but I have a high priest. We have such a high priest. And he has dealt with my sins. So as I come to pray, I remember my access to God through him. I remember this high priest when I'm tempted I remember this when I sin. I remember it when I'm persecuted. I remember it when I'm afflicted. That we have, or you might say, I have such an high priest. I have such an high priest. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, if you're truly a child of God, if you have by faith turning from all your righteousness, all your works, all your hope in yourself, turning away from that, resting solely, exclusively in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have such a high priest. You have also here his majestic position, not only his mediatorial role, but his majestic position. He is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now we have 
And again, this was right out of the gate, Hebrews 1 verse 3, the statement of where Christ is. We have something said about a priest that could have been said about no other priest. He occupies this role, set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. It's language of that dwelling place of God. Now, God is everywhere, but He has a dwelling place, heaven. This is where the apostle gets everyone to turn their eyes and to see that there, at the right hand of God, is the God-man who possesses authority and power. Why is he placed there? Why is he there and no other has ever attained to that position? Can it be said of any other priest that they have been perfectly faithful to God? That's one of the things that the apostle makes clear concerning Christ in Hebrews 2.17. His faithful high priest. Can it be said of any other priest that they have become the sacrifice? Can it be said of any other high priest that they've experienced every trial and temptation without sin? Can it be said of any other high priest that they have the ability to feel and succor effectively men in all of their need in a fallen world? Can it be said of any other high priest that they have become the author of salvation? Can it be said of any other high priest that they have conquered death and that they live forever? In the power of an endless life. You see, our Lord Jesus fills a role that is exclusive to Him. Having died and conquered death, He ascends into the heavens to occupy a place at the right hand of God, given government over all things. All power is given unto Him both in heaven and on earth. And thus He is seen in this position of equality with God, as the God-man. Now, we know this in terms of the divine nature. But what we have in Jesus Christ is a union of the two natures. But the humanity of Christ had to obey, had to live, had to do everything that was appointed for Him to do. And then that humanity gets exalted and occupies visibly at the right hand of the throne of heaven, a place. Now, I want you to see how this works out even in Revelation. Go to Revelation 4. Revelation 4. Reading Revelation 4 on Friday. And you, you may know That statement of worship to God. Verse 10, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. 
And then we come into chapter 5, and we have this lament. Verse 2, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now there's debate over exactly what the nature of this is, but many have concluded that it relates to the outworking of, of providence, of, of God's will in the world. And there's no one who, who can exercise that authority or that role. Whatever it is then, verse 5 tells us, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, see it, child of God. Here's your high priest. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, Heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. And what you see then is this, this honor that is being ascribed, this recognition, this, this, this worship and praise that, that goes up for this one who has who's stood in this place and occupies this role. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And beloved, this is, this is our encouragement and our hope that we have one who inhabits this royal throne who's seated right there for us. We have such an high priest. I have such an high priest who's set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You're meant to think about this when you face your trials. You're meant to ponder this when you consider the difficulties. When you, when you face temptation, what, what power are you looking to? Are you looking in? Look up. Behold the Lamb. See your priest. See him condescending. See him desiring, beckoning to, that you might seek from him the strength that you need and the power. Such a note of victory in verse 1. But we move on. He ministers in a divine tabernacle. Not only he inhabits a royal throne, but he ministers in a divine tabernacle. 
Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. The word true, true tabernacle, I think it's important for us to just think of this for a moment because sometimes when we see the word true, our immediate response is to contrast it with false. Something on the flip then is, is false. So you have a true tabernacle and then a false tabernacle. But that's not how the apostle uses the word here. He's not intending for us to imagine that the tabernacle appointed to Moses and to Israel was a false tabernacle. Sometimes the scripture uses the word true as it relates to the ultimate or the superlative. And you have this in, in various, I could give a number of different examples, but just a couple here. When John the Baptist is, is we're told that he is a burning and a shining light. But then of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1 verse 9, we're told that he is the true light. And we ourselves are, are, are lights, aren't we? We're to be the light of the world. We're told that by the Lord himself. But we're not the true light. The true light is the Lord Jesus Christ. The same can be said in John 6, when you have that occasion where you have the feeding of the 5,000, and it is tied into the next day, the Lord gives that discourse that ties it all into that manna that came in the wilderness and provided for their fathers. And he says in John 6, that I am the true bread from heaven, John 6, 32. He's not saying that the manna was false bread. But he's the true bread. He is the superlative bread. He is, he is the real sustenance for men. And so that's the idea that you have in verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle. They were given a tabernacle, but it wasn't the superlative one. Like the manna was, was, was real and, and sustaining and and gracious, at the same time, it wasn't. It was just pointing to the true bread. The same concerning the light. And other examples could be given as well. So we have this superlative tabernacle. The one that, the old tabernacle, the tabernacle appointed under Moses, pointed to. So our Lord Jesus is a minister of, this, of the sanctuary. This is the true tabernacle, a place that was not built by the hand of man, which the Lord pitched, and he's drawing here, of course, from that tabernacle language, in which the tabernacle was pitched, it was set up. And then whenever God would, the, the, the pillar of cloud or fire would move, they would, they would pull it all down and they would move along, and then they'd have to pitch it again whenever it came to remain in one place. And what the apostle does here, he touches on something that he's going to develop. And we'll, we'll see more concerning the tabernacle in, in the weeks to follow, God willing. But having established the superiority of an unseen priesthood, he will also establish the superiority of an unseen tabernacle. Just to give you some idea of that, go to chapter 9 and look at verse 24. Well, we might, we might read from verse 23. Hebrews 9, 23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. So this is the point, that where Christ is entered into is not some man-made tabernacle, even though it was divinely, the, 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 the blueprint for it was given by God. Even though the blueprint came from God, it was built by the hand of man. And what the apostle is saying is the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into a place not, has not the mark or the fingerprint of man on it at all. And the tabernacle given to the Israelites was, was vital, it was important, and taught important truths. But it was never the ultimate expression, ever. It was a shadow, not the substance. It was emblematic, not the essence. It was reflective, not the real. And the Old Testament saints understood this. Now God dwelt there in the holiest of all. He dwelt there. His presence was made known to be there. And yet at the same time, the saints of God knew that God's true dwelling place was not on this earth. So that when you read Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, which substitutes the tabernacle, when Solomon's dedicating this grand place of worship, what does he say? In 1 Kings 8.43, he prays, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. Now, he desires God to make his presence known in that temple, just as he had in the tabernacle. But the true dwelling place of God is in heaven. It's in a place that is not built by man. And so Christ is a minister of this sanctuary, the true tabernacle. And that tabernacle is the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And Jesus Christ sat at the right hand. And I like how it describes our Lord Jesus as a minister of the sanctuary, reminding us that He's not there doing nothing, that He is not having accomplished His work here on the earth and given Himself and offered Himself without spot unto God as a sacrifice for our sins. He has not ascended heaven to sit there doing nothing, but He is a minister, He is a servant. He's ministering there. Now, we have seen passages already that tell us this, that indicate to us Him there receiving our prayers, bestowing grace. And we are to dwell on that and think about that, that he, there He is, even now, as we here are on the earth. He is ministering in that sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Know how He ministers. Do we know all the ways in which He ministers? It'd be good for us to thank the Lord for the things that we don't even know He does for us. You know the way they had that sacrifice, Levitical law, they had a sacrifice for the sins of ignorance. They had certain sacrifices in which they'd commit sin and they would come and offer sacrifices for that sin, but they also had an offering that indicated that there were sins that they knew they hadn't done. Sins of ignorance. And there should be praises of ignorance too, shouldn't there? Things in which we're aware that our Savior is helping and aiding and sustaining and bestowing help and grace in times of need, and we're not even conscious of it. We never even sought it from His hand. Oh, He is there ministering, ministering to receive us when we come to God, bow our heads and we pray. He is there. He is right there. Isn't that amazing? He is right there to receive us to give us acceptance, 
He's there to hear our cries for mercy and grace in time of need. To save us to the uttermost as we see these expressions come through Hebrews. That is preserving us continually to the very end. He is there in our times of temptation. In times of trial, he is there. He never, never takes a vacation, never goes on a break. He's never unavailable. It's amazing. A minister of the sanctuary. We have such an high priest set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. There he is. Oh, beloved, why, why live your life ignoring? Why live your life imagining he's not available to you? Why make yourself a second-class Christian? We all, with equal approach to God, have this access through Jesus Christ, unhindered, unrestrained. We can come. Pour out your cares. Tell him your fears. Lament over your shortcomings. Let him know. Plead for grace, for strength, for power, for wisdom. Parents, as we, we face one conundrum after another, trying to deal with the nuances of different personalities in our children, wondering how to guide them aright, shepherd them aright, deal with their peculiarities, realizing that one or the other may be easier than, than one of the other ones. We're like, how do, how do I deal with this one? There's, 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 there's a high priest available. We have such a high priest, a minister of the sanctuary. He will hear. As you're wandering about your job, stability, financial issues, health matters, he is there. In every one of them, beloved, in every one of them, a minister of the sanctuary appointed to this end. Be a mediator for us. Ministering in this divine tabernacle and how glorious it is that we don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to some location and try and get his ear and get his attention for our needs. He's in heaven by his omnipotence, being divine by virtue of his divinity. He can hear all the appeals of all of his people all the time. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that some are convinced they should go to saints to make their appeal? That Mary in some way is a better approach to get what you want than our Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't it amazing that individuals can read Scripture and not see the clarity with which God presents His Son as the sole solution? What darkness must cloud the mind that looks to Mary like some kind of solution to us in our torments in this world and in this life. Or the peculiar saints who have a, a bank of grace that they don't need for themselves and are, are there to bestow it upon you and me as we come to them. Maybe when we travel, we'll turn to St. Christopher or maybe when some other issue, we go to St. Philomena or whatever, as if they're there with a bank of grace to help us in particular needs. It is Christ, a minister, in the sanctuary, who sees the need of his people, who condescends to their humble cries and petitions. It's glorious. Thirdly, he offers a perfect sacrifice. 
Verse 3. Every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. It took many priests to oversee the extensive work of the tabernacle. It's one of the things I wish I could see function. I, I've tried preaching through Leviticus. I regularly would try to put myself at the tabernacle and depict in my mind, try to imagine what is going on. And these millions of people needing help with one location to go to. And these busy priests going about their work of, of receiving those who come with their offerings and others that are trying to clean up after them and others that are making sure all the ingredients are necessary for the, for the incense and all the, this, this, the mechanics, the cogs and the, and the, and the wheel of this, this work. It's hard. I would love to be able to see it. And the high priest had a peculiar role set apart with the highest responsibility of representing the nation on the Day of Atonement. Again, this is another thing that's going to work itself out in coming verses. There's going to be focus on the Day of Atonement, but the apostle is going to draw extensively from that in terms of teaching us what it is he wants us to understand. So in that, what sometimes referred to as the tabernacle proper, you have the outer court, you have the tabernacle proper, and you have that first room, and priests would constantly be in and out of there. But then you had that, that most holy place. Only one man, on one day of the year, would enter to represent the entire nation. And yet, it was expected that he would continue this role throughout his lifetime until his death. And so over the course of his lifetime, he would offer gifts and sacrifices, plural. Constantly another sacrifice, year after year. This is contrasted, isn't it? With this man, verse 3, this man. It is of necessity this man have somewhat also to offer. There's a sense of the singular there. It's, it's, it's driving at one singular thing that was offered. Not a multitude of things. Not year after year. But one sacrifice. This again he has already dealt with in verse 27. This he did once when he offered up himself. That's the amazing thing about it. Here you have a priest offering himself. Go to chapter 9 again just to see a few things. Verse, verse 6 and 7. Try and see some, some of the contrast here between what the priests were doing and what our Lord Jesus did. Chapter 9, verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. Again, that's that, that first part of the tabernacle proper, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, 
not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Go down to verse 11. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see the contrast? They're engaged in this work, ministering to try and alleviate the conscience of men. Christ offers himself. And he does so once, one offering. And this is, this is teaching us, and this will come out more, the fact that the sacrifice then was sufficient to put to rest all the demands that are found in the sins of the people of God. The demands of, that the just God requires as he sees sin committed and his law being broken. I mean, this is real, beloved. God is real. His, his justice is real. His law is real. And it's real that we break it all the time. Sometimes we drift through life and we have real, no, not much of a, a conscious awareness or a real pondering over the fact that we're constantly coming up short. But while we would not say that we are to go around in a morose fashion in some kind of constant sense of grief of our shortcomings and awareness of our shortcomings enables us to appreciate and value what we have in Jesus Christ who by one offering by one offering such is the perfection of the sacrifice given such is his obedience such is the fact that here you have the God man laying down his life the just for the unjust such value there is in the merit of him that when he dies and offers himself, it is done. The question of how to justify sinners is answered in him fully. There's nothing more needed. So we see the efficacy of this perfect sacrifice. He offers a perfect sacrifice. That is all we need. It is him. Finally, he dwells in a heavenly context. He dwells in a heavenly context. Verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern show to thee in the mount. And I was tempted to go into verse 6, especially when it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. Just to tie up this thought, but we'll get to that in due course. I can't he's just leave here with this, this fact that our Lord Jesus is not on earth. He dwells in a heavenly context. If he were a priest on earth, then he would not be a priest at all. Because he couldn't function in the temple, could he? He's not a Levite. 
Christ was never intended to minister in the shadows. But in the true. He was always appointed to minister in the true. He doesn't need to go and find acceptance in the temple in Jerusalem in order to conduct his work. He transcends it. All that they were doing, all that they were engaged in, in temple ministry, insofar as they stayed true to the Word of God, it was just pointing forward to what the Messiah would accomplish. He had no part in that particular work of being a Levite, ministering on the earth like the other Levitical priests. If he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And this is what he's going to deal with now, how this, the law or the old covenant is put away and supplanted by the new covenant. We'll get to that. And what do these old covenant servants do? They serve onto the example and shadow of heavenly things. The word example means a, a sign suggestive of something else, a representation, a figure, or a copy. That's the sense of the word. They serve on to this sign or this representation, something that suggests something else, namely the heavenly things. Of course, Moses was admonished, and you find this in Exodus 25, verse 40. If you have a reference Bible, it'll tell you that. This quote where he is told, See that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. It was very important that he did that. Moses is shown. And what has to happen on earth has to reflect what is true in heaven. The people need to be instructed. Not that they might hope in the earthly, but the earthly might bolster their faith to consider the heavenly. That they might be enabled to see with more clarity what is laid up for them. So, so this is what he is prescribed to give. Give this tabernacle, appoint the priesthood, have all the various elements and all the furniture and every part of it is all particularly prescribed to point forward. Because one day there'll be a high priest who will represent you, not here on the earth, but in heaven itself. Love of the point of this passage really ties into the bigger argument of the entire book of Hebrews. And that is, why on earth would you go anywhere but to Jesus Christ for what you need? Why? Why are there competitors? Now, we're not Jewish. I imagine there's probably not anyone Jewish here. If there, if there are any Jews here, you might be an exception. But even for you being so distant from what happened and what was going on at the temple 2,000 years ago. Their lives revolved around this. And they were attached to it. And in the midst of persecution, there, there is this, this desire to, to, maybe out of self-preservation, in terms of the persecution of the Roman Empire, that is, is, is unfolding right as this epistle is being given, or maybe in terms of the economic struggles that they're facing due to the abandonment that they face 
when they take Jesus as the Messiah and believe that, and now that's starting to have real consequences upon them because that abandonment from their Jewish community is leaving them in economic straits. But whatever, wherever the pressure is coming from, for the apostle, there, there can be no competition. You cannot ever justify leaving Jesus Christ. There can be no grounds for anyone to believe in the Lord Jesus, follow the Lord Jesus, and then turn around at some stage along the way and decide that there's something better or there's something else. Whatever, there's just no place for it. You have a high priest. You have one representing you. He loves you. He really loves you. And he came into this world and he lives in a way you cannot live. And he died bearing sin upon his body, suffering under the wrath of God, enduring what our sins deserve. He bears all of that. And he rises again the third day and he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high. And he is, he is there as a friend of sinners, a friend. And yet in our times of trouble, what do we do? What do we do? What do we turn to? What are we resting in? What is our hope in? Do we only turn to our doctor when we're sick? Do we only turn to our, our, our friends when we're lonely? Where, where, where are we turning to? The, the drive of this epistle, the drive of this epistle, and this all fits in here with the rest of it. The drive is this. Just keep running into Christ. Never abandon Christ. Don't even let the thought come into your mind to compromise. You need Christ. You need Him now. You need Him every day. You need Him all the time. You need Him for your sin. And you need Him for ongoing grace in the temptations of this life. You need Christ. Without Christ, you're without the substance, without salvation, and without its privileges. So say to yourself, whatever you're faced with today, I have such an high priest. I have. And do the study yourself. I have a list of references here. I didn't go through them. References to the high priest. Put in priest. Look in Hebrews. See the arguments. See the truths he's already revealed and unfolded here. And you say, I have this for me. He is mine. He is mine. Bless God, he is mine. Let's bow together in prayer. Bow before the Lord, let me ask you, child of God, are you growing in your appreciation of your Savior? Are you growing? Do you value what He has done for you at Calvary more today than at any other time in your life?
Are you conscious of His love, of His accessibility, of His interest, of His care? I encourage you to dwell much on the Lord Jesus as your priest, as your high priest, and as your Redeemer. Lord, please help us, please help us to value what we have in Christ. Please help us to turn to Him at all times, whether good or ill. Please give us eyes to look for Him and to see Him. Give us hearts that worship Stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. Bless us. Bless us this day. Bring us back again to worship thee, for thou art worthy. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with every child of God now and evermore. Amen.